What a great day to worship our awesome God, who is the audience of one, as we fall down before him today. People of all ages like to go to all kinds of parades. If I were to ask you, I bet just almost all of you would love parades in one way or another. There are celebrative parades, such as the inauguration of a president, the wedding of a prince, welcoming home victorious soldiers, or possibly a championship team. There are also parades which are very somber, very sad, like the funeral parade of a fallen hero or a leader. Parades have been a part of the history of these United States from before the Revolutionary War. You know what the oldest parade in the United States is? Anyone have an idea? It's Mardi Gras in New Orleans. It took place in the, for the first time in 1857. The next oldest parade is the Tournament of Roses Parade, which began in Pasadena in 1890. Last year, as some of you know, I was in San Antonio and I experienced Fiesta for the first time. Fiesta is like Mardi Gras and yet much more family friendly. It has its roots in the history of Texas and the Alamo. And believe it or not, there are three major parades in Mardi Gras. The first of those takes place early in Fiesta Week, and hundreds of thousands of people go down to the Riverwalk for the, Caval the Texas Cavaliers River Parade. And it's the only parade that I know of where the floats really float. I was a guest of friends, and we sat out and had a glorious dinner as the parade went by. We sat in the same place that they'd been sitting for the last 25 years. The next parade was the Battle of Flowers Parade, which takes place, which started in 1891, and is the largest parade in the nation run entirely by women. It is several hours long. And then the final parade is the Fiesta Flambeau Parade, dating back to 1948. It has a distinction of being the largest illuminated night parade in our nation. I was privileged to see all of these parades, and uh, I was privileged also to hear people say, say, you know, cry out several times, Viva Fiesta, and thoroughly enjoyed the rich tradition. In a little less than two months, we're going to have a parade here in India, aren't we? The 500 Festival Parade, which has become one of the greatest in the nation. What's your favorite parade? Oh, maybe you enjoy watching it instead of being in the crowd, watching it in your living room. It may be on uh, Thanksgiving morning, or it may be on New Year's Day. Today, as we finish this series of messages entitled, Countdown to the Cross, we're going to look at two very different parades taking place in the same city just five days apart. I think you will agree with me that these parades are the two most important parades in human history. Let's turn our attention to an eyewitness account of that first parade as we find it in John's Gospel, and I'm going to be reading from chapter 12, 
verses 12 through 20. John's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 12 through 20. I would encourage you to follow along with me in your Bibles if you brought them, your pew Bibles, or on the screen. Listen for the word of the Lord. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast, and that was the Passover, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. That's found in Zechariah 9.9. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given his, this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. May God add his blessing, understanding, and application upon this the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please join me now in prayer. God, it's great to be here today. I thank you for each person here coming from different walks of life, different situations, and yet coming to worship you, the God who made us, the God who is the singular attention of our worship today. I pray now that in these moments, as we think about these two parades, that you would speak to us by the power of your Spirit, speak to us and apply these truths to us in a way that's far beyond my doing. I pray today that you would speak to the preacher and the people alike. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. The first parade has Jesus triumphantly entering Jerusalem at the Passover. While certainly different from the 500 parade or the San Antonio Fiesta, the Passover was a huge celebration. It took place each year in the springtime in Jerusalem. In the Passover, all good Jews were hearkening back to their corporate memory of the last plague in Egypt when the children of Israel were still in bondage. In faith, they were to offer a sacrifice, a lamb, and then take the blood of the lamb and paint it on the doorpost of each of their living quarters. The death angel would then pass over every one who had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. It was after this horrendous happening for the Egyptians that the Egyptian pharaoh released Israel. And then we have one of the greatest events in all of Israel's history, the Exodus. The Passover was one of three festivals compulsory for every Jewish male within 20 miles of Jerusalem. Every good Jew wanted to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. In fact, if you were someplace else in the world, you would say, this year here, next year, Jerusalem. One Jewish historian said that there were as many as two and a half million people in Jerusalem for the Passover. 
In the year we just read about, the third year of Jesus' ministry, there was a buzz about the young Galilean rabbi. While everyone knew that the religious leaders were out to get him, the question was, would he show up for the festival? People in the crowd were talking about the way that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the tomb where he had laid for four days. Because of Jesus' preaching, teaching, and healing, many of those on the road or, or already in the city were looking for this long-awaited Messiah. He could be setting up his kingdom this year. They would be observing firsthand history taking place. Oh, the Romans were a formidable foe, no question about it. But if he was the Messiah, and he must be if he could raise someone from the dead, if he's the anointed one, then he could set up the kingdom. Because of the religious leaders' deep desire to get rid of the one whom they believed threatened their way of life, Jesus' disciples and closest friends feared for his safety. They warned him, stay away. Don't come to the Passover this year. Thomas expresses their fear when he says in John 11, after Jesus says he's going to Bethany and then to Jerusalem for the Passover, let us also go that we may die with him. All of these facts form an important backdrop for the first parade that we're going to look at together. It was a day after Mary had anointed Jesus' feet with costly ointment, which was a foreshadowing of his death, that the news leaked out that Jesus would soon be entering Jerusalem. There must have been a growing sense of anticipation as they awaited his arrival on that Sunday before the Passover. Last year, I waited for an hour ahead of time for the Battle of Flowers parade. I found a good place to stand and watch. And it was fascinating to watch the people. Every time they'd hear something or they'd look as far as they could see down the street to see if the University of Texas marching band was coming or if they could really hear the first notes of their, their song. So it must have been as people awaited on the pathway, looking, listening, on that pathway between Bethany and Jerusalem, down the Mount of Olives, through the Kidron Valley, and then up into the city of Jerusalem. There had been preparation. This wasn't just a spontaneous thing. People had cut down palm branches, like the ones they'd used when Judas Maccabees, one of their great heroes, had come to rededicate the temple in 164 BC. Palms were also waved to welcome Simon Maccabees, as he returned from conquering the Jerusalem citadel in 142 BC. The people were ready to throw down their cloaks. And as they threw down their cloaks, this would be kind of a red carpet welcoming for Jesus. Jesus was careful to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, which said, Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Jesus has his disciples secure the colt of a donkey for him to ride. While sometimes a military leader or a monarch would come in on a great stallion and would be brandishing a shining sword and would be outfitted in armor, there were other times when a great leader would want to come as an uh, agent of peace and wanted to demonstrate this. And he would come in humility, just like Jesus did. 
It, all, it must also be said that donkeys, unlike we think of them today, were noble beasts and people looked up to them. As Jesus the Messiah rode in on that parade on that first Palm Sunday, he would not be a national liberator overthrowing the Romans as many had hoped, especially when they saw that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Instead, Jesus came as a symbol of humility, bringing peace and conquering much, much more than the Romans. He would do something that no one before or no one since had the capability or the power to do. He would conquer sin and death, bringing a lasting peace beyond our human understanding. As the great reconciler, Jesus would be, bring peace with God and peace with others around us. The people that day had no idea how revolutionary Jesus really was as he rode into Jerusalem. The crowd shouted, Hosanna. And like John said, that was, save us now. They also shouted from Psalm 118, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Little did they know that Jesus was the Savior and King unlike any other. As we look at that frenzied, almost hysterical crowd, some coming out to meet him, and some coming along with him, we can spot three groups of people. There are the curious who had heard a lot about Jesus and want to see for themselves if history is happening before their very eyes. There are those who have been with him before and believed wholeheartedly that he is the Messiah. They believe they are moving toward a moment of fulfillment. And then, there are also the religious leaders who are panic-stricken, more panic-stricken than ever, as they see their worst nightmare coming true. Some of them exclaim in, in great desperation, you see, we can do nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Well, we've experienced different parades for all kinds of purposes, and in various settings, I dare say that none of us has ever experienced a parade like that first parade on Palm Sunday. Can you hear the hosannas? Can you feel the sense of anticipation that it's so thick that you could cut it with a knife? The celebration that is taking place there is a culmination of centuries of waiting for a deliverer who would sit on the throne of great King David. In stark contrast, the second parade took place on the Friday after Palm Sunday when Jesus carried his cross to Golgotha. The days between the two parades were action-packed and tumultuous, to be sure. Jesus overturned the tables and chased the money changers from the temple. The atmosphere further heated up when Jesus spoke vehemently against the religious leaders. The frenzied passion of the masses, treating Jesus like a great conqueror on Palm Sunday, fizzled out 
as Jesus did not meet their expectations. Many of those in the crowd were fickle enough to believe the impassioned words of the religious leaders who had arrested Jesus, illegal, tr illegally tried him, and handed him over to their dreaded enemy, the Roman governor, Pilate. They wanted Jesus dead, and legally they did not have the authority to execute their lawbreakers. Execution was left up to the Romans, even though they would have taken Jesus out if it hadn't have been for the fact that all the people were there and they were afraid of a riot. If Pilate, had done, if Pilate did the dastardly deed, they wouldn't be in danger from either their own masses or the Roman government. The second parade begins as Pilate is blackmailed by the religious leaders and acquiesces to the shouts of the people, crucify him, crucify him. I dare say some of the shouts came from the same voices who had said, Hosanna, on that first parade. The second parade snakes its way through the narrow, packed streets of Jerusalem with Jesus and the two hardened criminals carrying their crosses on which they would be executed. It's plain to see that the second parade is as tragic as the first parade was triumphant. Jesus, the same humble king for whom they'd rolled out the red carpet and shouted Hosanna, waving palm branches, is now a pathetic, even grotesque sight. I mean, if you were standing there and suddenly the procession comes around the corner, you would be horrified. You would be shocked. His back had been shattered, shredded by whips. A crown of thorns had been thrust upon his head. He was clearly physically spent, even though he was a rugged individual. If your eyes met his, he did not have the same look of anger or revenge that the other two had. No. He didn't exhibit that kind of anger or belligerence about the injustice being done to him. His eyes were filled with sadness, but also with compassion and love. As was true of the first parade, people reacted in different ways to him as it wound, as the parade wound its way through the crowded streets and made its way outside the city toward the place of the skull where he would be executed. There were those who were curious, and there's a mixed reaction with them. Some of them are in stunned silence, can't believe what they're seeing. Others shouted obscenities at him in their disappointment. Still others might have spat upon him or shook their fists at him. For his followers, there was shock. There were bitter tears. There was utter amazement and disbelief. There was for many a quiet sense of indignation that they would do such a thing to such a good and decent man who for many had changed their very lives and hopefully their futures. He had brought healing and hope and now this 
is his reward? For the religious leaders, they continue to demonstrate a kind of self-righteous indignation as if Jesus were finally getting what he really deserved. It must have been difficult to keep from smiling and giving each other the equivalent of today's high fives. They could now breathe a deep breath of relief. The renegade rabbi would no longer be a threat. They could get back to business as usual, their rather slimy status quo. There are collective gasps as the parade stops suddenly on a couple of occasions as Jesus collapses under the heavy, rough-hewn cross. The whole ordeal has taken its toll on this rugged carpenter. The second time he falls, one of the pilgrims for the Passover there, a man with dark-hued skin from North Africa, is conscripted to carry the cross up the final steep slope to the destination where he will be executed. That's the second parade. Our Lord endured it out of love for each one of us. Soon, he would hang between heaven and earth, bridging the chasm between God and humanity. There's a sense in which Jesus rides into our midst today, just as he did that first Palm Sunday. It's as if the doors are opening in the back right now, and he rides down our center aisle. But the big difference is this. Today, he is now the risen, and he is the reigning Lord. And there's something very compelling yet disturbing about the way he rides in to our midst today because each of us are met with his gaze. His eyes meet each of our eyes as he slowly rides down our aisle today. In fact, in many ways, When you think about it, we're a lot like the crowds when he meets our eyes, just as many of their eyes met with him that first parade and that second parade. Some of us today may be here out of curiosity. Maybe we're hoping to observe something special. Maybe we're looking for something that'll be kind of an emotional high or maybe some kind of an intellectual experience. Some of us are here like those followers who today fall down and worship him and say to him that we love him. He's brought us forgiveness. He's brought us joy, peace, hope for the future. There's still others of us, if the truth really be known, that may be a bit threatened by this Jesus. If we really take him seriously, he might take us to a place from which we can never return. When his eyes meet yours, in which group are you? To go a step further, as he rides in our midst today, 
each of us is confronted with the question, crown him or crucify him? If it's crown him with love and humility, we accept his forgiveness, affirm or reaffirm him as Savior, King of kings, Lord of lords. With all of our hearts, we want to serve him by reaching out and serving others. And like him, we desire to be heralds of hope in every way possible to the world around us. If it's crucify him, it could be that you really don't believe in him as Savior and Lord. Maybe you're apathetic about him, quite frankly, and, and maybe threatened by him, threatened by what he might ask you to be or what he might ask you to do. Possibly there are just too many things that you want to get out of life, and if the truth be known, he really isn't even close to the top of your priority scale. Maybe you're saying crucify him through your words and actions which are hurting others whom he loves. Oh, be sure of this, my friends, that even though those around you may not know your response, the one who looks at you as he comes down the center aisle knows exactly who you are and what you're thinking. If you would like to talk to someone about your response afterwards, if you'd like to come to know him, even as Bob mentioned in his prayer, uh, there will be someone in our, over here in this little alcove by the cross, and we would consider it a privilege to pray with you or to share with you what it means to have a personal relationship with this Galilean rabbi named Jesus, whom we worship today. As the now risen and reigning Christ dismounts, and stands before us on this Palm Sunday, I challenge you to crown him. Crown him as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings of your life. Let us pray. Good and gracious Savior, it's so good to look back upon these two parades, unbelievably contrasting, and yet so real. Lord, as we consider our response to you on this Palm Sunday morning, I pray that you would help each one of us to sort through our lives. Help each one of us to understand which group we might find ourselves in. Help each one of us in new and fresh ways to commit ourselves to you to being your followers, to being heralds of hope in the world in which we live. There are those here who are saying, I just don't know who this Jesus is and I'd like to know more about him. Give them the courage to search. If there are those here who have been searching and want to find him, give them the courage to step out. And God, help all of us who are ambivalent to be re-energized and ready to serve you anew, even this week and the days to come. It's the name of Jesus that we pray all of these things. Amen.